Let's go right to the Bible this morning, and let's look at some of the text that we looked at last week in this series of messages called to be saints. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 and verse 45, words spoken by Moses to ancient Israel. And then we're going to go over to the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read words spoken to you and to myself. Called to be saints. Leviticus 11, verse 44, God says to Israel, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Look down at verse 45, same chapter. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Then in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13, having already seen and realized that the two verses that I read to you were spoken to ancient Israel, we now come to what the Bible calls the church. Verse 13 of 1 Peter in chapter 1 says this, Wherefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, which again, you need to understand conversation is an old English word. It means your behavior. So be ye holy in all of your behavior, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. I want to make mention here of this phrase, it is written. And without going through details, which would take us a little bit off of the course that's set for us today, as we hear high-profile ministers, at least one, talking about unhitching from the Old Testament, we find this phrase written many times in the New Testament. It is written, meaning it's already been written, and it's always referring to the Old Testament. With that said, it doesn't take much meditation or thinking to see that the exhortation given to Israel under the law is the identical exhortation given to us under grace. Be ye holy. For I am holy. And there we have in 1 Peter 1, at verse 16, because it is written, referring to the law. And again, without getting into a protracted definition of how are we not under the law, yet we're under the law to God and the moral law, let it simply be stated that the Bible has 66 books, and all of them are inspired by God. From Genesis chapter 1 to the last book, the 66th book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, and all of it is written by God, and all of it is given by inspiration, and we should be reading all of it. Then we need to discern of what things in the Old Covenant we are not under, ceremonial law, and what things have never been abrogated by God himself to mankind, and specifically to the church. Now, I want to give you something that I just scratched off really quickly from my own mind yesterday. And you'll never need to use this because most all of you will never be in the ministry full time. Now you're in the ministry. You just won't be there full time. <clears throat> Yet it may be a help to just think some things through. And what I have here is something, again, that just came out of my mind as I just scratched quickly. Of 15 ways to make your church the largest in the city or the state. Any city, any state. Number one, the leader of said church congregation must call himself or herself a life coach and avoid all biblical references to, for instance, apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. That's number one in my mind. Don't refer to yourself by a biblical title. You're a life coach, which incidentally is exactly what people in the world of psychology and other areas like the New Age refer to themselves, a life coach. Number two, Give motivational speeches that are lightly seasoned with Bible verses. And the emphasis there would be on the adjective, lightly seasoned. Number three, promise success in this life, including comfort and ease of existence. 
Number four, never speak more than 15 to 20 minutes. Number five, never talk of sin. Number six, never talk about hell. Number seven, never talk about sanctification. Number eight, never talk about holiness. Number nine, never talk about crucifixion or the blood of Christ. Number 10, make Jesus in man's image. In this case, for us here, make Jesus an American. And don't bother yourself that God made man in his own image. Number 11, convey the ideology that a positive mental attitude is the same as biblical faith. Number 12, seek to please the wealthy givers and the influential people, not only within the congregation, but any place. Number 13, remove the older generation and replace them with the younger movers and shakers. Number 14, support socio-political causes, turning them into biblical doctrine. And number 15, preach to please man, not to please God. This, in my mind, guarantees that you'll have the biggest church in the city or perhaps even in the state. It's been a while since I've brought to you the words of Paul Harvey, but I think they are apropos at this particular juncture, this message. So I want to read them to you. He said many years ago, If I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the... So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. And I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in his turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have memorizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions. Just let those run wild. Until before you knew, you'd have a drug-sniffing dog and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon, I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, then from the House of Congress, and in his own churches. I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls in church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbols of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who want until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what do you bet? I could get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes and hard work and patriotism and moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun than what you see on the TV is the way to be. And thus, I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Now, originally, Paul Harvey wrote that in 1965. Quite a few of you here weren't even born when he first said that. Now it's been amended. This is a bit of a revised edition, but it's pretty much the same way. A few exceptions. The way Paul Harvey wrote it and announced it on his radio broadcast when I was in the fifth grade. Paul Harvey, at that point in time, was the name in radio broadcasting, but he was a Christian. 
His words were, I believe, in the sense, loose sense of the definition of the word prophetic. They certainly were prescient and speak of the times in which we live now. And I've told you this before. If you study Western history, from the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, you'll see that whenever the church fell away, the society went right behind it. That's precisely what we see in Europe and what we're seeing now here in America. As the church slips away, as there are substitutions for biblical doctrine and biblical titles and so on and so forth, as messages are designed to please people so they keep on coming, and maybe in the mind of the preacher and his board, his elders, his deacons, if this is pleasing to God, we make a critical mistake. So let me give you two ways to have the smallest church in the city or perhaps in the state. Number one, just let the Bible say what it says. Then number two, insist that the people listening to it obey the commands, principles, practices, and rules of God. And in this age, though obviously this is hyperbolic, both of these statements of mine, holds true at the moment. To have a big church, you have to please people. And if you don't, well, you run into all kinds of difficulty, financial and otherwise. When you have a preacher, a pastor, whoever they may be, and the Bible says, and then as you talk to them, counsel them, say that you must do this, you must live this way. That's when the problems start. We send our children off to school, starting at grade school, and the indoctrination begins. By the time they're at the university level, and I've seen this much more than I've seen it the other way around, they reject Christ. They reject the Bible. They reject the plain texts that anybody can read. In essence, they just reject God. And this is what we're experiencing right now. Cheryl Chumley is an author. She is the online editor for the Washington Times, a notable author and editor. She's written books. Let me give you the titles of them in case you're interested in reading them. The Devil in D.C., Winning Back the Country from the Beast in Washington is one of her books. Another one is Police State USA, How Orwell's Nightmare is Becoming Our Reality. But her newest book is titled Socialists Don't Sleep. Then the subtitle is Christians Must Rise or America Will Fall. And here's a small quote from her book. She writes, quote, It is no wonder communist nations seek to drive out God. Collectivism, which for our purposes to say communism. Collectivism and Christianity can't coexist, at least not for long. Socialism and America can't coexist either, at least not for much longer. If America is to be free, America needs Christians to get louder. It's that simple. She writes, it's the Judeo-Christian belief that brought America to such great heights. It's the turning from Judeo-Christian beliefs, the turning from God, the secularization of the nation, the door to big, bigger, biggest, even socialist government to enter. It's by turning to what worked in the first place that America can recapture and hold for the long term its cherished freedoms. That starts with the churches. That starts with national confession and repentance. These are the words of Cheryl Chumley. That starts with the hearts and souls of the people. From Alinsky's Rule for Radicals, again, a most interesting citation of John Adams. Quote, the revolution was effected before the war commenced, John Adams wrote. The revolution was in the hearts and minds of the people. The radical change in the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections of the people was the real American revolution. A revolution without a prior reformation would collapse, become a totalitarian tyranny. Yes, grab the heart of the people. It is not long before the soul of the nation will follow. Socialists in America aren't sleeping. They're advancing. And they're coming not just for the country, but for the soul of the country. Let us awaken. Fall to knees in confession, repentance, and prayer. Don spiritual armor. and Stop the advance before it's too late. Even as others mock, save the dream of America before it's too late. Onward, she writes, Christian soldiers. As silly as it may seem, and we were talking about this yesterday at the dinner table, as silly as it may seem, it is yet another sign, however comedic, that Hasbro has decided to take off of its boxes the name Mr. Potato Head and simply have Potato Head. 
but then assures us that, don't worry, inside is still Mr. Potato Head and Mrs. Potato Head. I did not know, and how could I? The company that makes Barbie dolls has a Barbie and, of course, a Ken, then a gender neutral. I have brought to you this complaint that this defies intelligence, let alone morality. There's so many things today that an intelligent, a person of average intelligence can figure out that this doesn't make sense. Yet, I've always believed that sin can so works itself through the life of individuals that it begins to affect the intellect and somehow twists it. That individual who ordinarily would be what we would consider smart says things that just doesn't make sense. Now, I can give you a lot of examples from our present time right now. And I think if I could phrase it this way, the problem that I have is I think. The problem that I have is I ask a question of my doctors, of our scientists. I say, wait a second, how do we get here from that? How does that work? And when I get what is typically called gobbledygook, I say to myself, I think I'll back off just a little bit before I jump into this, because this doesn't make sense. It just simply doesn't make sense. But I, I, I want to say this as well. I don't think that all of this is simply an intellect that is twisted. I believe a lot of it is contrived. It's designed to cause the chaos that we have. It's designed to cause the commotions that we have. It's designed to cause confusion. But we know this. For God is not the author of confusion. Not intellectually, certainly not spiritually, not of his order, of his principles, none of these things. God is not the author of confusion. Now, with respect to the message called to be saints, I want to just bring you a brief excerpt from a sermon preached in 1865. No, it was 1856. Before our American Civil War, the notable preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon was in England preaching this message and just engorged with principle and again, almost a prophetic sense. Listen to what he was saying. And he was talking about the Puritans and he wrote this and preached this. Spurgeon said, perhaps some of the Puritan fathers may have gone too far and have given too great a prominence to the terrors of the Lord in their ministry. But the age in which we live, remember this is 1856, but the age in which we live has sought to forget those terrors altogether. And if we dare to tell men that God will punish them for their sins, it is charged upon us that we want to bully them into religion. And if we faithfully and honestly tell our hearers that sin must bring after it certain destruction, it is said that we are attempting to frighten them into goodness. Now, we care not what men mockingly impute to us. We feel it our duty. When men sin, to tell them they shall be punished. And so long as the world will not give up its sin, we feel we must not cease our warnings. But the cry of the age is, and I say this again, this is 1856. But the cry of the age is that God is merciful, that God is love. I, said Spurgeon, who said he was not. But remember, it is equally true God is just, severely and inflexibly just. He were not God if he were not just. He could not be merciful if he were not just. For punishment of the wicked is demanded in the highest mercy to the rest of mankind. And what I want to show you here, two things. A, there's nothing new under the sun. However, during this period in England, in the 19th century, was something that is now called the downgrade theory. The Bible was coming under heavy criticism from intellectuals in places like seminaries and the Bible schools, where we always expect they're going to come out to defend the Bible. But the fact of the matter is that the Bible suffered then and suffers now more at the hand of its so-called defenders than it does from anybody else. Breeding confusion on various texts and breeding confusion on many issues. And Spurgeon, regarding the downgrade theory, he came out against it. He wrote against it. He spoke against it. And what do you think happened? Rather than receiving all of the accolades and the applause of people who once attended his Bible college, they left. His friends distanced themselves from him. His health deteriorated. And he died, in my own estimation, by my own judgment and opinion, Prematurely. He fought against what was wrong inside the church. And as we see in the Old Testament particularly, and we know of our history and Christian history of the apostles, and certainly we know from Jesus, that when you do that, when you go to the people who are supposed to be reading and living and defending the Bible and so on, they're the first people to pick up the stones and kill you. Prophets are rarely, I mean real prophets, are rarely invited to prayer meetings. 
They're rarely invited to speak at the pulpit. Because when things get as bad as they did in England in the 19th century, and Spurgeon was warning that if we go down this track, it's going to be a disaster for our country. Now you just take a look at England today. If that's not sad enough, realize that it came across the ocean to America. For example, referring to the Puritans, when they were out to reform the Anglican church, well, it wasn't really working out too well. They came here to America. And in spite of what you may have heard or learned in school, they did not step off the Mayflower and the other boats that came up and down the coast with AK-47s and wipe out the nation. Read a little deeper into the history of mankind, and you're going to see that it's never so black or white. In any case, the Puritans came, and what did they settle here in Massachusetts and Connecticut and so on? They called it New England. This was their phrase, where the world could see visible saints, our subject, called to be saints. They had an ambition, which I think didn't work out too well at the moment. They had an ambition to live by the word of God in such a way that the world could visibly see saints, meaning themselves and other Christians. In any case, we've had a long, slow descent away from the plain texts of Scripture and an emphasis on living them. You who profess Christ are called to be a saint. And as I mentioned last week, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I said to you, I don't advise that you go out and tell everybody about that at the moment. It won't be well-received or understood. If we change the name of our church here from time to truth to St. Raymond's, it's not going to work out very well. If you mention to someone who is not only raised in a certain denomination, as many of us here were, but also still attached to it and say, I'm a saint, that won't go over very well. Because saints are special people whom we elect, who have various qualifications. But you, you're the proletariat. You're the plow boy. You can't touch these people. But biblically speaking, everyone that names the name of Jesus Christ is called a saint. Because the word, as we saw last week, is hagias, a holy one. And it tells us what we read in Leviticus 11, 44 and 5, and 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 16, that we are called to be holy because God who made us in his image says, Now, you be holy because... I who made you am holy. I know there's some of you here as parents, and when your child is an infant, people try to guess who he looks like or who she looks like. And we go back and forth. Looks like the father, looks like the mother. You know, depend, you know we go through this. But one thing shouldn't be a question. It's a human being, and it looks like a human being. When God made us, we do not look like the rest of these class of animals that has been fostered upon us through this thing now that we call Darwinism or evolution. Now, somehow, we're all connected. And this is true. I'm telling you a true story. When I was taking a course in psychology at the community level when I first started college, the class was asked, why do men's hairs run downward? I don't know. And so the professor, psychology professor, informed us, it was a woman, that this is because of the many millions of years of swimming underwater as you know, various other types of species. The Bible says God created man instantly, instantly. And what's worse than that not flying well at the university level with all the erudite intellectuals is that it's not flying very well inside the church. But you know what? I'm grateful for this. That's not my concern. It's not my calling. I'm called to do one thing. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Other people are called to those things. Many of them are good at it. But yeah, that's what I was taught. Well, I wasn't born again at the time, but I didn't buy that that my chest here runs downward because of millions of years of swimming in the primordial pools of water. A boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. What a revelation. That's common sense. Not necessarily morality. It's common sense. Can you tell a boy when you see one? Can you tell a girl when you see one? Not too much anymore. No, well, all right, I'll grant you that. It could be a debatable subject. But you see, we are following in the same path as European nations. As the Bible is downgraded and the word of God is not taken to be what it is. The words of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 7 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. We read this last week. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, to all, in every place, with all, that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, they're called to be saints. As strange as that seems now because of the abuse of the word, that's what God calls us. And not only in the New Testament, but the Old as well. This word saints or saints, primarily the plural saints, is used 98 times in the Bible. King James Version, the one that we use. 98 times. Let me give you some examples. But before I do, let me share with you what we read about our conversation, the Old English word, that means behavior. How we live, how we act, how we think, how we talk, and all of this. And draw from the Uniform Code of Military Justice of when someone who's enlisted in the military, all the branches, has conduct unbecoming. And not just officers. There were two cases, excuse me, there were two movies, more than two cases. There were two movies, one made in 1975, another in 2011, that that was the title of the movie, Conduct Unbecoming. Now the plot summary and the plot is a little different in each one, but it has this one common theme that somehow soldiers get themselves into trouble and are brought up on charges, serious charges. And on that list is Article 133, Conduct Unbecoming, in one case of an officer. Conduct Unbecoming. And as a federal employee, for those of you who are employed by the federal government, you might not know, but there are laws that pertain to you in a similar fashion as they do to the military, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And in case you don't know much about the difference between civilian laws and the UCMJ, military standards are much, much higher. The punishment's much more severe. And in the case of Article 133, Conduct Unbecoming, the punishment is, or it can be, that you will not go up in rank or you will be forced to leave the military because your conduct was not lined up with what a person in the military should be. Again, it's not just officers, it's anybody. Here's a case. This is a real case. And it happened just a few years ago in 2018. The charge brought against this federal employee was this. Listen. You are engaged in conduct unbecoming when you informed others in the office that you were the recipient of the Purple Heart Award for military service, when in fact, you never served in the military. And this was a real case. I don't know how it ended up, but this is part of it. This was the charge. Let me read it again. You engaged in conduct unbecoming when you informed others in the office that you were the recipient of the Purple Heart Award for military service, when in fact, you never served in the military. Your misconduct, listen, your misconduct reflected poorly on the agency. Now, I bring this to you before I read a couple of verses. To say to you, not only should we be looking at each day as so much time we have, and that's the end of it. And you have so many of those days, and then that's the end of that. But to ask yourself the question, as I ask myself this every day, and I don't always like the answers I'm getting. I really don't. So that means I have to go before God, and I do this to say, this has got to be improved upon, Lord. I'm sorry. Is your conduct unbecoming Someone who's called of God to the kingdom of God. We read in the scriptures, in Romans 16, verse 2, speaking of a sister in the Lord, the church at Rome was told to receive her in the Lord as becometh saints. That's becoming. It's conduct becoming. And that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you, for she hath been the succorer of many and of myself also. As becoming saints. That's what I want you to see or hear. Conduct that is becoming. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3. We read that last week. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. And then there was a list of other things too. Let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Conduct. That is matched up and lined up with the nature of the God who called you to eternal life. Just so that you do know, what type of things can either officers, enlisted men, women, be brought up on charges that are unbecoming and either be dismissed from the military or never get up in rank or somehow get a discipline? Cheating on a test or a training event? Lying? This is UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Lying knowingly make a false official statement. Being drunk and disorderly in public or on base. 
using insulting or defamatory language to an officer, and you get the idea. doesn't seem like much. And I've heard it said, well, soldiers are soldiers. But there's still a conduct. And we grant the fact that Christians sin. Others are not always what they ought to be, and we understand that. However, there would be no use at all for a UCMJ in the military or for civilian laws if there were only merely suggestions. If a stop sign meant, if you want to stop. If a red light means, if you feel like it, and so on, then there wouldn't be principles. There would be suggestions. And when Moses met God on Sinai, God didn't suggest Israel live like this. I mean, if you feel like it. I am the Lord thy God. You will not have any other gods before me. And his name, by the way, is Jehovah. You won't make any image to another god. Not that which is in the sky or in the sea or on the land. You won't take my name in vain. Then we go from there to the Sabbath and honor your father and your mother. And these were not suggestions. And so when we hear preachers preach, and they don't do a thorough enough job of explaining. When they simply say, it's all by grace now. It's all by grace. It's not the law. We're not saved by the law. I discount dishonesty most times from the pulpit. This tells me they have not thoroughly researched their own subject in which they are supposed to have expertise. They have not looked at the scriptures, let alone theology that goes with them, from those who've had proven ministries throughout the years. You are part of the church. Remember that, in my opinion, labels mean very little. First Church of Holiness, the First Church of Faith. These names, they're just labels. And they could be true, but then again, my experience says in most cases, the label doesn't mean much. As a matter of fact, even when you go on a website for many churches, their statement of faith often is not exactly what they live up to. We're talking about the Bible, the Word of God. Be ye holy, for I am holy. It is written, I am holy. It's not a suggestion. And we must not take it as a suggestion. In other words, to amend it, we would say it this way. Be holy if you feel like it. And if you don't, well, you just go find a preacher that says that. Be ye holy. Hagias, a saint. Called to be saints. And we see this quickly. I'm going to give you some references just to fill your mind with this word saint or saints. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Psalm 31, 23. O love the Lord, O ye his saints. For the Lord preserveth the faithful and plentifully rewardeth the proud doers. Psalm 34, 9. O fear the Lord, ye his saints. For there is no want to them that fear him. Psalm 89, 7. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. And to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Psalm 97, 10. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. He preserved the souls of his saints. He delivered them out of the hand of the wicked. This is a really good one, by the way. In Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I learned that when I was a young Christian. Never forgot that one. Our perspective of death, if it's truly biblical, is one of victory. Because of the resurrection of Christ and the gift of eternal life. The worldly view of Death is that it's the greatest defeat anyone could ever suffer. But for the Christian, we believe Christ. Romans, New Testament, chapter 8, verse 27. He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 16, 15. Salute Philologus and Julia and Nereus and his sister and Olympus. And all the saints which are with them. 1 Corinthians 6 1. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? 1 Corinthians 14 33, the one I quoted earlier. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And then again, 1 Corinthians 16 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. So this is just a little bit of a sampling to, let me say, whet your appetite on getting used to the word. Because it has a very strong connotation of what it means to be a Christian. Called to be saints. Called to be saints does not mean God is implying that from the moment that you receive Christ onward, you'll be perfect. We know that by experience, but subjective experience is not the last test. It's what the word says. 
that if we offend God while we're born again, as we're born again, that we still have an advocate with the Father. But what the word saint does imply is that our heart is no longer turned to these things any longer. Now, I mentioned to you last week a very short list that is much, much longer of high-profile ministers who have gone on to fall into rather egregious sin. And I found that told you one common denominator with all of them. They never make a clear confession, or rarely. I did wrong. And I don't really quite understand when you make a profession of anything, and it turns out that you've not lived up to that profession from my own way of thinking. This is a time to say, and especially when we read what the Bible is talking about, this is the time to say, I failed. You see, look, let's look at David. David failed God in a very big way. He saw a friend, his associate there, Uriah, and he saw his wife, and he took his wife, and she became pregnant. And then to compound the matter, let me make it worse, he sends his friend off into the battle. He says, when the battle gets heated, withdraw from him. Now it looks like, number one, Uriah got his wife pregnant when he was home on leave, if you read the whole story. Number two, he just got killed in battle. Everything's good. But here was the problem. There's a God who sees. And there's a God who speaks to real prophets and says, go and tell David, thou art the man. And I want to remind you, well, I have no option but to stand here and preach to you because I'm a preacher. I have no option. And I'm glad to do my duty. But I do want to remind you, the Holy Spirit says to each and every one of us, if you're listening, consistently, thou art the man. Well, we talk about others, and including those not inside the church, and the Holy Spirit is saying, but you. You say you shouldn't steal, but do you steal? And we read that in the second chapter of Romans. You say adultery is wrong, but do you commit adultery? And you say stealing, and we go through this, it's the law. And while we preach to others, we don't want to be, as Paul said, I keep my body under means I discipline it, so that while I preach to others, I don't find that I'm the castaway. And we must look at these things with a sober mind. I brought to you a little bit earlier here of what is happening in America, which happened already in England, in Europe, France, Germany, go on the list that once were known as Christian countries and still are called by name Christian countries. But we see what's happening here. So that not only morality, but the intellect is stultified. The supposedly smart, high IQ individuals make statements that don't make sense. Tell me, you tell me, how can someone that has a registered IQ of 160, let's say, but there is no God? My grandchildren know that. And not even coming from coming to church or from Sunday school. They look at the stars and they say, somebody made them. You're sitting in a building. You're sitting in a room. And no one had to explain to you the ceiling came from somebody. The walls came from somebody. You see, it's intuitive. We don't come in here and it doesn't even enter our intellect. Because we're sitting in a building that somebody, and I don't know who it was, built it. The bricks came from someplace. The mortar came from someplace. The sheetrock came from someplace, and no, 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 we already know that. So if we look at the universe, you could say, well, I'm not sure who God is. I'm not sure who that creator is. I'm not sure who the designer is, but there is a designer. It's intuitive. So when somebody says to me, well, he's pretty smart, I say to myself, how smart can he be? Or she, that can't figure out that there is a creator? I can understand them saying, I don't know who the creator is, the designer. But you can't be very smart. In my own way of thinking, if you cannot acknowledge the existence of God, and now when we look at the Bible and we profess that, oh, it's the word of God, then it becomes incumbent upon us to read what it's actually saying. And so we can keep the church nice and small. And if I say to you, listen, this is not right, it gets even smaller. Because you're not going to tell me what to do. Nobody tells me what to do. Then how am I your pastor? Then just exactly what am I? Now, what we have here is... Christianity, when we read the book, called to be saints. And what I wanted to say was this. Since I've always felt that I'm the biggest sinner in the room, and knowing it, then I want to be the most merciful person in the room. Because all of you that are struggling against sin, now if you're not struggling against sin, that is something to be considered. And think when you go home. Because our very nature, even if Satan is not around, we struggle against these commandments of God. We struggle the Lord spoke to me, I mean, not in the voice, but as I'm reading the scriptures just a few days ago. And I'm, honestly, I'm telling you, honestly, I did not like the thought. I felt myself rebelling against it. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. 
But you see, again, the Holy Spirit is pointing this out because if I was not you know, sensitive to the Lord or not caring what he thinks, I'd just go past it and get to the success verses and stay positive. But how can you stay positive when you're crooked? And God is saying, look, I'm going to straighten you up a little bit. When you are walking with the Lord, you will feel, though it's not necessarily the truth, you will feel that you are the worst sinner in the room. And you won't walk around with a puffed up chest pointing out everybody else's failure. I don't like him. I don't like her. You won't form a little corner, a little clique. This is a lot of years of experience speaking. Where after the church will say, what did you think of pastor's message? It's not important what you think of the message or of me. It's important what you think of the word of God. Whether it is actually the word of God or it is not the word of God. And we need to make up our minds. Because God is saying, make up your mind. I said, well, I don't really want to make up my mind today. Then the Lord says this, he who is not with me is already against me. I don't like that one either. I just want to be faithful. And I know that you do too. And many that are watching and listening by way of radio. So now we are at a point where if we can get past our own individual salvation and go and become a little more altruistic, the nation is at stake. You may say, well, what does Mr. Potato Head have to do with anything? Well, in the great scheme of things, maybe not a whole lot, but it's just one more installation. Just one more little thing where, let me say it politely, we're being so dumbed down that it really bespeaks a clear definition of what it means to be stupid. When we can't get to the place that we recognize a boy or a girl, when we are called all types of names and derided that we dare call this newborn a boy, where we put in laws that are now in place, that have been in place for a short while, where you do not have to declare your gender. Forget the morality part of it. Let's just think of intelligence. How intelligent can that be? In any case, what we have to be careful of is this. As the Holy Spirit works on your life, and you will feel like you're the worst sinner. Right? We could have an argument over who's the worst, but nobody wants to put all their dirty laundry on the table there and actually find out. But what we find out is this. In a collective sense, all have sinned. I'm no different from you in that respect. You're no different from me in that respect. And now we come down a few rungs on the ladder to speak in tones of concern and compassion because that's what a Christian is. I said this to you last week, and I want to mention it again. Puritans, by the way, would be a great example. Forget how Hollywood portrays them. Gloomy-looking people, always wearing black, like they're in mourning. They wore colorful clothes. They had other ways about them, other thoughts about them, ways of behavior about them. But they were striving to please the Lord, at least in theory. And when we speak to each other, knowing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we have to have a balance between telling the truth, because we've already applied it to ourselves, And humility, because when I speak to you, you speak to me, you already know what the struggle is like against your own life. I told you last week it was well, and you can count on this. This is something I know. The greatest antidote for anxiety and depression is holiness. A clear and approving conscience, which we obviously don't always have that. But then there's the blood of Christ that washes us again and again and again and again. Washes us over and over and over again. And it never loses its power. Never. But as we speak, we speak in humility, but not only to each other, but to everybody. Because when we look out there, if you can remember the day that you were just like those people. And when you compare your sin, I wasn't like that. When you go to any prison, I'll say in the world, but I know it's true in America, everybody's innocent. That's something you learn early on in jail. And in the message that I gave to the population many, many years ago, I said this to them. I said, you may be here and you may be innocent, but you know you're not innocent before God. And no one raised an objection. As a matter of fact, the altar was filled with people saying, I want Christ. And in that particular message, the COs were standing around listening too. And there was quite a few of them. And they were all bowing their heads. They were all bowing their hearts. Somehow that night, the Holy Spirit was reaching not only those that were in jail, but those that were working there. One was a captain, correctional officer, CO. And they were all bowing their hearts. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Humbles us before God. But then he says, now here is the path that you are to take. Jesus had a cross. We'll go through it in a few weeks when we come to Good Friday and go through the details of a Roman crucifixion. But now Jesus is saying, come and die. And that's the part I don't like. 
I'll deal with the death of Christ and I'll deal with the cross of Christ and I'll deal with biblical doctrine and let's make it very orthodox and make it conservative and all that. But when Jesus says to me, now you, you die. I'm like the rich young ruler. I don't commit adultery and I haven't stolen. But what do I lack yet? Sell all that you have and follow me. I had an advantage when I came to Christ. I didn't have anything. And I don't have a whole lot more now than I had when I came, so I still have an advantage. But the parable, that, a story rather, that the Bible gives is of a rich young ruler who he will not give up his wealth. In this case, Jesus is saying, come and die to your selfishness. Come and die to your selfishness. That's crucifixion. And then we get these verses here. Romans 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Then in verse 24 of chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, after we have the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, self-control. Against such there is no law. We have this verse, verse 24, Galatians 5, and they that are Christ's, a Christian, a saint, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. And oddly enough, Though this may be hard to believe, God actually had his own idea about how to grow a church. And I know that's going over the line. I know some board somewhere, deacons and trustees and all that will say, well, we're clever. And yet Jesus says, if you love one another, they'll know that you're one of my disciples. I don't even like most of the people in the church. I'm not even sure I like the pastor. But I go because, you know, it's close to my house. And Jesus says, stop the meetings about church growth. And just do what I tell you to do. And when it comes to the crucified life, we don't have to read these sometimes embellished stories about the saints. Just live it. And then we're together. And then we walk together. And you're not alone. And then you have what I mentioned before. The value of an approving conscience. Now the Apostle Paul would say this. This is a paraphrase. He said, I have endeavored to live my life in such a way that my conscience is clear before God and before men. Quickly, how do I know? And this is the greatest antidote to anxiety and depression and mental health illnesses and all that. Because I lived it. I was the one person that wasn't supposed to make it. On paper, I wasn't supposed to make it. If you look it up today, I'm still not supposed to make it. And I've made it. How did I make it? By a clever plan? Let's have another meeting. I was looking at the scriptures and trusting God through the scriptures. I was able to find out in experience, Psalm 34, 4, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. So let no one be misunderstanding about what it means to be a saint. It's anything but that dolorous, lugubrious, depressing look, but the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. Because those that are Christ have crucified the flesh. All right, how do we get there? The Bible tells us to examine ourselves. This takes a bit of, um, well, it takes a bit of work. Vigilance, constant and continual vigilance, is the price of victory and freedom. I'm forever finding a thought, for some reason I picture here in the front of my mind, you know, the front of my brain, and saying, wait a second, I don't want that thought, and I just reject it. It's not always easy to do, but listen to me, it's a very simple principle, that you could take any thought at all, including the imagination and anything else, and put it in your mind, and you could keep it, or you could neglect it, or reject it. Either one. You could take that thought and say, I will not think this way. I will not think this way. I will think according to the word of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light. It's a lamp. It illumines my mind. And I have the ability to make the decision to say, yes, I agree. I will think this way. Then my behavior becomes becoming rather than unbecoming. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourself. Now, if it pleases you, you can go home and examine me, if that's your thing. But I would caution you, and I would also exhort you to go home and do what the Scripture says. Examine yourself. Whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not that your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? 
1 Corinthians 11.28, when we have communion, which we will have soon, by the way. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And we're told in the scriptures to examine ourselves. And here, writing to Christians or saints, he says, now, examine yourselves here to see if you're actually in the faith. It's quite a statement. You're called to be a saint. One last time, I don't recommend you go out and shout it today all over the place. And when you do, everybody, will, not just God, everybody will be watching you. So some saint you are. Well, that's something that we just have to deal with as we have the colloquial phrase, suck it up. Because that's the price of salvation. Father, we bless you today. We praise you today. The scriptures are sharp. They are more sharp than any razor. Sharper than anything. It goes right down and discerns one thought from the other. It divides the soul from the spirit. And it's what we need today. We don't need motivational speeches as much as we need expository teaching and preaching of the scriptures. Oh God, we pray today in Jesus' name. As we see the signs of your coming. That when you arrive, we would be found in faith. God, if you call us home, that we would be found in a place that is pleasing. A life that has been pleasing. Help us today, God. And help us to acknowledge the command. To acknowledge the order. We are called to be saints. And people are going to write us for that. And they're going to mock us for that. And they're going to have a good time pointing out real faults. Help us to accept it humbly. And when it's true, to acknowledge it. Go before you and say, change my heart, O God. Change my attitude. Change my speech. Change me, O God. We bless you. As we read in the Psalms, we praise you and thank you. Who you are and for what you've done. We bless your name. We give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor today, Father. And again, you are great and greatly to be praised. Remind us this week, Lord, of the two great commandments upon which every other commandment in the Bible hangs. Love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. And then to love each other. Help us to love people. Give us the strength. Give us the grace. Remind us this week of these things, which we've heard and read. Keep us faithful to the end. We pray, Father. In Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen with me today? Amen. amen. And amen.